Well, good morning. As you can tell, I'm not Tom. In fact, about a week and a half ago, we were in Wednesday night Bible study, and uh, um, I was one of the folks who has been visiting our church and came to the Bible study, and uh, she said she heard me preach uh, around Christmas time, and she thought I was Tom Richter. And I said, no, 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 you didn't get the real deal. But uh, Tom's in North Carolina. Uh, he has been preaching at a missions conference, and uh, then he also is preaching at a church in North Carolina this week, and then he's going to take a few days and be with his family, so be in prayer for him. And for those of you who are visiting for the first time, I'm Scott Carlin. I'm a member of the staff here at uh, First Baptist Church Coleman. Uh, this is a great church. If you're not a member, you need to join. Let's just be honest. This is awesome. So just come on. Uh, quit playing around. Just come. Just, just be a part of us. Uh, if you've been here the last couple of months, you know that we have been studying out of the book of 1 John. And so today, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12 through 21. It's going to be on your screen, but I would encourage you, if you have a smart device or if you have a Bible, turn to it and follow along as we read and look at this passage of Scripture. Begin reading in verse 12, again, 1 John chapter 4. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Now I want to unpack this passage of scripture. But to do that, I want to take the very first phrase of verse 12 and kind of lay a construct, what I believe, what John says, and then we're going to have four points of application. But this first phrase says, no one has ever seen God. To help us really understand this verse, what John's talking about, is you've got to go back to Exodus 33. There, what happens is if you follow along in Scripture, you'll see that Moses has led the children of Israel out of Egypt into what we know and call the Exodus. And the Exodus is a, is a journey into the promised land. Well, one of the first stops that happens along the way, and this happens in, 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 towards Exodus 32, 33, is that they come to a place called Mount Sinai. And it's there that Moses receives the Ten Commandments. But while he's receiving the Ten Commandments, and you may be familiar with this story, what happens is the children of Israel are down in the valley. And they go back to the gods that they had worshipped in Egypt, and they erect a golden calf. 
And God's wrath falls upon the children of Israel at that time. And so there's this discussion between God and Moses on whether or not God is going to go with the children of Israel as they continue to make their journey into the promised land. And eventually God says, yes, I'm going to go with you. And then what happens is there's this, this discussion between God and Moses. And I want to pick up in chapter 33 of verse 18. And this is going to be on the, the, the screen and we'll read this together. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So here John says in this very first verse of chapter, in, in, in chapter 4 verse 12, he says, no one has ever seen God. See, what Moses ran into the problem is that you have the holiness of God and you have the sinfulness of man. And because of this barrier between the two, you couldn't get them together. God would visit, but he wouldn't habitate. And Moses wanted habitation, not visitation. Moses wanted to see all of God. So again, we come back to this passage, and no, God said, no one can see my face and live. So then we come to 1 John. Now, in the very beginning of 1 John, in John 1, 1, the very first verse of, of this book that we're studying, this is what John writes. That which was from the beginning, we have heard, we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. John's saying, I've seen Jesus. I've touched Jesus. I've walked with Jesus. I know Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? Let's see what Jesus said about himself. In a discussion with Philip, the disciple, in John 14, this is what is recorded. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And in fact, in a few passages earlier, he had said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. In Hebrews 1, 3, and I think this will be on your screen. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, and after he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So the question is, so no one's ever seen God, but we have seen Jesus. So how do you know Jesus? Well, let's look and see what John says in this passage of Scripture. He actually says this in, in verse 15. He says, if anyone acknowledges... That Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, 
and they in God. That word acknowledges in the ESV actually means, also can be translated, confess. So what's this confession? Well, this is what Paul says this confession is. He says this in Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. saved. So in other words, no one's seen God. But we have seen Jesus. Well, how do you know Jesus? You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead. In other words, you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And you take that event and take it to your heart. And because you see, just like Moses, you have sin and you can't get to God. But because of what Jesus Christ did for you and me on the cross, we accept that event by faith and ask Jesus to come into our life and to forgive us of our sins. Then something happens. We go back to verse 13. This is what John writes. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul writes in Ephesians 1.13, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. In other words, we are baptized into the Holy Spirit. When you accept Christ, when you believe and you confess that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, and you've asked Jesus Christ to come into your life, you are given the Holy Spirit. You are baptized into the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul uses the phrase, in Christ. He uses the phrase, in Christ, 160 times in his epistles. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Well... How do you connect with the Holy Spirit? Well, this is what the the writer of Hebrews says. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide soul and spirit, joint and marrow, even to the thoughts and matters of the heart. In other words, so when you accept Christ, when you have confessed Christ, and Christ lives in your heart, and the Holy Spirit lives within you, the way that you access, that you grow, that you mature in this relationship with Christ is through the Holy Spirit. Well, how do you do it? You read his word. You abide in his word. You walk with him in his word. As you read his word and you apply it to your life, he takes the word of God, the written, the living word, the words of Christ himself, and makes it come alive in your life. In fact, John 16, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. You need to know what to do about a question or decision that you have in your life. You take God's word, you read God's word, you pray it, you depend on God, and God uses his word to give you direction and leadership in your life. That's how it works. But also there's another part of that. Paul says this in Philippians 3, 10 through 12. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this or already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which is Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. So in other words, there's this mysterious dance that's in the Christian life. I'm describing to you basic discipleship 101. You believe in Christ, 
You recognize the fact that you are alienated from, from God because of your sin. You put your faith and your trust in Christ and you tell him you're giving him your life. He then accepts you into the family of God. You, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. Then it is on you to abide in Christ, to walk with Christ. But he pursues you then as you pursue him. And what does Paul say? We take hold of him because he's already taken hold of us. It's this mysterious dance, the mysterious, mystical walk of following Christ. It's not two plus two equals four. It's multiplication and calculus. It's one of the most challenging, difficult things you will ever do in your life, but it's also so simple that a five-year-old can understand it. It is the invitation of God to know him, to walk with him, to understand the mysteries of the universe, to understand the mysteries of God in a way that you never can on your own. It is a personal, intimate relationship with God who is the creator through his son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. It will give you the ability to live life on a different lane, playing a different level, because you are empowered by God through his Holy Spirit to live life totally dependent on him. That's the invitation. That's the foundation of this passage. So then, out of this foundation, there are four things that John gives us out of this that are kind of applications, that are ripple effects of this conversion and discipleship experience. Let's look at them. The first one is actually in back in verse 12. He says, but if we love one another. So in other words, what happens is that when you accept Christ and the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you, you are now given a capacity to love that is far beyond your ability. It's your heart begins to grow and expand because God's love is placed inside of you. Now, now, make no mistake, every human being that walks upon the face of the earth has the capacity to love because we were all created in the image of God. But God's love through Jesus and Christ and the Holy Spirit gives you a capacity that's far beyond your natural ability to love. And yet, and that's why John says, you'll love one another. But then there's a second part of this. It's the flip side of the same coin. It's the second phrase in this verse, in verse 12. God lives in us and his love is made complete. The ESV says perfected. Now that's not talking about moral perfection. This is talking about growing in maturity and growing in your ability to understand what God's love is like and understand how you can love others far beyond what you're capable of in your natural self. This love will make you a better husband. Sheila can testify to that. <laughs> It'll make you a better father. My kids can testify to that. It'll make you a better mother. It'll make you a better wife. It'll make you a better co-worker. It'll make you a better person. That's what God's love does. It transforms your heart. One of the best illustrations I have of this is out of, it's not C.S. Lewis, but it's close. It's from the Dr. Seuss book called The Grinch Stole Christmas. 
And if you've ever seen the movie or read the book, you know that the Grinch is a bitter, grouchy creature with a heart two sizes too small, who lives in a cave on Mount Crumpet, a steep mountain just north of Whoville, home of the cheerful and warm-hearted Who's. He is annoyed by all the noisy Christmas festivities that take place in Whoville and decides to stop Christmas from coming. He disguises himself as Santa Claus and travels to Whoville on a sleigh with his dog, Max. He slides down the chimney of the first house on the square and steals all the presents, the Christmas tree, the food for the Christmas feast. But while he's doing his nefarious endeavors, he encounters Cindy Lou. She's a young who girl. He escapes from Cindy Lou, but then he goes on and he goes to the other houses and he takes his sleigh and with all the stuff and he goes back to Mount Crumpet and prepares to dump the stolen items into the abyss. But dawn breaks and he expects to hear the who's crying, but he's shocked to hear them singing a joyous Christmas song. He realizes perhaps Christmas means just a little bit more than all the presents and the trees and the Christmas and all the stuff that's associated with Christmas. It's just a little bit more than he ever realized. And what happens is his shrunken heart that was two sizes too small, it grows to three sizes too big. That's a picture of what happens to you and I when we encounter Christ through the Holy Spirit and abide in his word. Robertson McQuilkin, his wife Muriel, developed Alzheimer's disease in her 50s. As her health deteriorated, he decided to step down from his prestigious job as president of the Columbia Bible College and Seminary in South Carolina to care for her. One excerpt from his book, Muriel's Blessing, he writes, Valentine's Day was always special in our house because that was the day in 1948 that Muriel accepted my marriage proposal. On the eve of Valentine's Day in 1995, I read a statement by some specialist that Alzheimer's is the cruelest disease of all, but that the victim is really the caregiver. I wonder why I never felt like a victim, he writes. That night I entered into my journal, and the reason I don't feel like a victim is I'm not. When others urged me to call it quits, I responded, do you realize how lonely I would be without her? After I bathed Muriel on her bed that Valentine's Eve and kissed her goodnight because she still enjoys two things, good food and kissing. I whispered a prayer over her. Dear Jesus, you love sweet Muriel more than I, so please keep my beloved through the night. May she hear the angel choirs. The next morning I was pedaling on my exercycle at the foot of her bed and reminiscing about some of our happy lover's days long gone. When Muriel slowly emerged from sleep. Finally, she popped up awake as she often does, and she smiled at me, and then for the first time in months, she spoke. She called out to me in a clear voice Love, love, love. I jumped up from my cycle and ran to embrace her. Honey, you really do love me, don't you? Holding me with her eyes and patting my back, she responded with the only words that she could find to say Yes. I'm nice. Those were the last words she ever spoke. In that book, he goes on to describe how God's love strengthened him, gave him courage, helped him walk through some of the most difficult days of his life that he couldn't imagine what it would have been like without God's love 
in his life. There's a third thing. It's not just that we love one another, and it's not just that God's love is perfected in us. There's a third thing that John brings out, and this is in verse 14. He says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be Savior of the world. You see, one of the, the ripple effects, the byproducts, the things, the, the things that you can look at your life and see assurance that you know Christ is because as you walk with Christ, as you know Christ, as the Holy Spirit takes more of your life in he, and develops that love in you, what happens is you develop a heart to testify that Jesus is real and he's the Son of God. One way you can do that as Chuck mentioned, you can put a cross in your yard and see what God does with it. May not do anything, but you're testifying to the reality that he's risen. So do that this Easter. In 1983, I was had the privilege of going with a team of guys that uh, to Paraguay, South America. To play basketball. We were from all different colleges and universities, and we went down to Paraguay to basically, our, our goal was to share the gospel. We did basketball camps during the day, and then we would play a basketball game at night, and we traveled around the country all during that week at different spots doing that same type of program. During the middle of the week, it was my privilege to be one of the two guys that shared our testimony. I'd never really done that before, but it pushed me on the edge, and I did, through an interpreter. Well, that game was hard. I mean, those guys played basketball like they played soccer. I mean, it was a brutal, brutal game. And it came down to the last few seconds, and we lost. And just about everybody on the team, man, we were down. We fought hard. We played, and it was just like, whoa. Well, then one of the guys that I'd played against came up to me because I'd been the one that had shared my testimony and through an interpreter asked me to tell him about Jesus. And I did. And he prayed to receive Christ. And I ran over to our bench. And, and you know, most of you know me some, somewhat, some of you don't, but I don't get really excited about anything. <laughs> but I was jumping up and down. I was whooping. I was hollering. I, and these guys all looked at me and were like, what in the world is wrong with you? And I said, he prayed to receive Christ. It was the most exciting thing that had ever happened to me. And I've never gotten over it. That trip, the summer of my, of my junior year in college, changed my life. I was headed to law school, planning to take the LSAT. And God began to plant a heart in me during that trip for God's people. For God's word, to share the gospel, change the trajectory of my life. You see, when God gets a hold of your heart, when the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and he lives inside of you and you abide in him, one of the natural byproducts is that you have a heart to share your faith. Like John says, we testify that God sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. There's one more thing. This is in verse 17. We gain confidence. 
This is what John writes. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Now, this word confidence actually means all speech. What it means is that when you and I, and see, judgment is coming. There will come a day when every single person that's ever walked upon this planet will face the judgment of God. But when you know Christ and his Holy Spirit lives inside of you and you come before God on that day of judgment, you can have confidence because everything that was ever needed to be said has been said because Jesus said it at the cross. That's what that word means. The reason you have confidence is because what Jesus says about you in front of God the Father. I mean, a couple weeks ago, I, I led a Bible study on Wednesday night on Joseph. And we came across this passage, and it so applies to this point. If you know anything about the story of Joseph, you go at the very end of Joseph's life, that you remember that Joseph, you know, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. But God uses that event to actually use him as a way to bring about and save the lives of not only his brothers, but his whole family. And so what happens is that towards the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph has taken his family and they've moved down to Egypt. Now, one of the things that's interesting in, in chapter 46 at the very end, Joseph is going to take his brothers before Pharaoh. He's going to introduce them to Pharaoh. Now, you've got to understand at this point in time, Egypt is the most powerful nation on the face of the planet, and Pharaoh is the one that holds all power of everything in his hand. And the splendor and majesty and the unbelievable opulence of what it must have been like to come into the Pharaoh's throne could not have been anything that we can even comprehend. And these brothers, on the total other end of the spectrum, are like country come to town. They were backwoods of Canaan. If you, if, you know, some of you are probably too young, but you may have been familiar with the sitcom Beverly Hillbillies. This would be the Beverly Hillbillies coming to the presence of Pharaoh. And so, Mo, and so Joseph coaches up his brothers and he tells them, the one thing you don't do is you don't tell Pharaoh what your occupation is. Because Egyptians despise shepherds. Tell them you're herdsmen, but don't say you're shepherds. Well, those boys come into the presence of Pharaoh, and you can see this in chapter 47. Pharaoh says, well, what's your occupation? And I can imagine they were, they didn't know what, and before they could get it out, they said, we're shepherds. And here's Joseph over here going, oh my gosh, I tried to coach him up. I just can only do so much. But here's what I want you to understand. Joseph wasn't afraid to call them his brothers. He wasn't afraid to take them into Pharaoh and say, they're mine. Listen to what Jesus says about us. This is in Hebrews 2, 10 through 13. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. 
You see, the reason that you and I can have confidence in the day of judgment is because Jesus calls us his brothers and sisters. We're part of the family of God. And he's not ashamed of us. And the reason he's not ashamed of us is because of what he did at the cross. Look with me in the verse of scripture on the screen in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And in Romans 5.9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. See, we don't fear because Jesus not only has called us brothers, he has taken away God's wrath upon your life and my life. The wrath of God, the righteousness of God, that was, and the reason that Moses could not come into the presence of God and see him face to face has been done away with. Jesus calls you and me brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed of us. In fact, he takes us into the very throne room of God and says we're family. Think about it this way. Think if you had a really, really hard job. Really hard job. And, man, you had deadlines. And you, you were under a lot of stress and a lot of pressure every day. And I can see some of you going, oh, yeah, yeah, that, I, I know that. That's like working at church. No, uh, and because, you know, there, sometimes you've got people that you don't, you know, that you just can't, you can't please them. There's nothing you can do. Well, Think about it this way. What if you had a boss that would walk in and every day tell you, man, you're doing a great job. And you know what? I have sat where you sit. I have felt what you felt. I understand what you're going through. And you know what? I even go to my father, who is the CEO and president of this company, and I tell him every day how good of a job you're doing. And I also tell him, there's no way we could do this without you. Do you realize that's what Jesus says about you? Do you realize that the wrath of God has been taken away? That you no longer have to fear the punishment of God in your life if you know Jesus? He's not afraid or ashamed to call you his brother or sister. I don't know. You see, when you look at this passage of Scripture, look what, what John writes. And he says in verse 18, he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. I don't know. If you're afraid, I just don't know what you're afraid of. But one thing you ought to not be afraid of is God. If you have fear in your life and the guilt and shame that is associated with it, you don't understand how much you're loved. If you are really, really loved, the thing that will be produced in your life is confidence. One of the best things that you can ever 
do to help a child have self-worth is let them know that they're loved. Marjorie Williams, in her book, The Velveteen Rabbit, tells a story about stuffed animals in a nursery. The skinned horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was so old that his brown coat was bald in patches and showed the seams underneath, and most of the hairs in his tail had been pulled out to string bead necklaces. He was wise. For he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive to boast and swagger and the by-and-by break their mainsprings and pass away. And he knew they were only toys and would never turn into anything else. For nursery magic is very strange and wonderful and only those playthings that are old and wise and experienced like the skin horse understand all about it. What is real? Asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came to tidy the room. Does it mean having the things buzz inside of you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt, asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off, and our eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all. Because once you're real, you can't be ugly, except the people who don't understand. I suppose you're real, said the rabbit. And then he wished he hadn't said it, for he thought the skin horse might be sensitive. But the skin horse only smiled. The boy's uncle made me real, he said. That was a great many years ago. But once you're real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. You see, when you accept Jesus Christ in your life, when you recognize that you need a relationship with God because of the sin in your life, and God comes and lives inside of you through the person of Christ and his Holy Spirit, he begins the process, the process of heart transformation, the process of character development, the process of changing you to become like Jesus It happens over time. It happens as you abide in his word, as you depend on him, as you walk with him, as you share your faith, as you practice it, as you live it out. And over time, over time, you become real. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You don't have to fear. You don't have to be afraid. Your brother and Savior Jesus Christ is telling you, come on. Lamentations 3.23, the mercies of God are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You can do this. You got what it takes. Pick yourself up. God's got you. He's not going to let you go. 
Because if you're real, it lasts for always. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that somehow, some way, as we think about these passages, these verses in 1 John, that the, the love that you have for us seeps so deeply into the very core of who we are. That God, that love, if we'll abide in you and walk with you and just stay in your word, it will transform our hearts. It will make us complete in you. You'll bring us to maturity. But God, all this is only real for those that have accepted you into their life. There may be somebody here this morning that has never had the experience of meeting Jesus for the first time. And God, if there's somebody at the sound of my voice, and it may be through the internet, it may be here today, but God, if they have never, ever accepted Christ, would they open their heart and receive you today? Oh God, let your spirit pour out upon us. Transform us. Change us. And give us hope. In Jesus' name, amen.